Thanks, Dan. Good morning, everyone. My name's Ernie. Uh, my wife, Tomiko, and I have uh, been part of Central for over 15 years, and it's a real privilege to be here this morning as we continue our study of the book of Acts. Um, when I was told that I'd be preaching from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, I kind of thought, like, wow, like this is one of the, the most pivotal piece of scripture in the Bible. It's the start of the church, the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. Now, the book of Acts, you may recall, is written by Luke. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke is an account of Jesus' ministry on earth up to his time of his resurrection. And uh, for those of us who may have missed a couple of Sundays along the way, you know, quick recap. Jesus Christ has been crucified on the cross. His disciples are freaked right out. This isn't the way it was supposed to happen. Jesus was supposed to bring the kingdom of God to earth. But instead, Jesus ended up dead. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, which likely made his disciples to at least say, like, wow, you know, like, and that's where the gospel of Luke ends and the book of Acts begins. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we read that he, Jesus, presented himself alive to them, but them being about 120 men and women, disciples of Christ. So he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So we have the death and the resurrection of Christ, followed by Jesus personally teaching kind of a 40-day crash course on the, uh, the Old Testament, on uh, the, how Jesus was the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. And now Jesus just tells them to go wait in Jerusalem for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then he ascends into heaven. A quick point I'd like to make is Jesus said, wait. Why wait? You know, the Holy Spirit could just as well have come at that moment of the ascension. But no, they were told they have to go to Jerusalem and wait. How long did they have to wait? They didn't know. As it turns out, it was nine days, so I mean, really not that long. But they really didn't know. And what would they do while waiting? Well, in chapter 1, verse 14, we, we read, They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So they're in Jerusalem, in the upper room. Now, we don't know if this is the same upper room as the Last Supper, but it must be a pretty big place because we're all together. And the 120 people were devoting themselves to prayer. And this brings us to our text today. So if you have a Bible with you, please turn it to Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 13. Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. There are Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. So I'll go ahead and read that. should be on the screen as well. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each of us in his own, hear each in his own language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia... Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and other parts of Libya belong to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, 
They're filled with new wine. There's our reading. Acts chapter 2. So, well, that would have been a crazy day, huh? You know, the text begins with the statement, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, to us, the day of Pentecost means the day of the Holy Spirit came, you know, 50 days after Easter Sunday, but in that day, it was a Jewish holy day. The day of Pentecost, literally meaning 50, was the festival of weeks, the Feast of the Harvest, or a celebration of Shavuot, which falls 50 days after Passover. And this celebration had been observed for nearly 1,500 years already. It was nothing new. In Exodus 23, 16, 17, Moses writes, You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor of what you saw in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. When you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. So there are three times each year the Jewish males from the known world had to present themselves to the temple in Jerusalem. The feast of the harvest landed seven weeks plus one day, or 50 days, after the Passover, and that was one of those times. So Jerusalem was filled with thousands of Jews from all over, and in the upper room, a nondescript building, the 120 Christ followers. So out there, the hustle and bustle of all these Jewish people, and unbeknownst to them in this room, in this nondescript house, 120 new Christ followers. So there they were gathered, and verse 2 says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So the 120 were just sitting around, and boom, the sound of a hurricane. Notice it was only the sound of a gale, but not any actual wind. But it was loud, so loud that all those Jews around the city heard it, and they started congregating around the house where they were. And then it says, Tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Notice it only looked like fire, you know, but it wasn't actually catching anybody's hair on fire here. You know, I can just imagine Bartholomew or something saying to Peter, hey, Peter, you got a little tongue on your head. <laughs> Try to blow it out or something, you know, and Peter was like, hey, you got one too. And they look around, all 120 people had the tongue on there. So we have wind and we have fire. The Holy Spirit is often described in the context of wind or the breath of life. Actually, the Hebrew word for spirit is actually often the same word as wind. And fire we hear. Normally, fire is used as a metaphor of purification, the refiner's fire, which is certainly a function of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. So and then in verse 4 we read, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's just talk for a moment about tongues. You know, the word tongues here is quite different than what we read later on in Scripture in, in Corinthians, perhaps. So in 1 Corinthians 14, 1-4, Paul writes, Pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So this spiritual gift of tongues that Paul writes about is a unique language understood only by God and sometimes by somebody able to interpret. But Paul compares that with the gift of prophecy, which is a declaration of God's truth. And his conclusion is that the gifts of tongues really only edifies the individual, whereas declaring God's truth with the prophecy is beneficial for the whole church. So unlike that spiritual language, that tongues that Paul talks about, the tongues on this day of Pentecost was quite different. On the day of Pentecost, the languages 
These 120 disciples spoke were real languages, languages recognizable to many people. And what were they doing with this ability to speak other languages? They were, edif- were they edifying themselves? No. They were declaring the wonders of God, benefiting all who listened. So that's the scene. We have audible noise like a hurricane, a visible manifestation with fiery tongues, and then finally speaking in foreign languages. Now I imagine between verse 4 and verse 5 there that the 120 people left the upper room and they went outside into the crowds. Remember the celebration of Pentecost had gathered thousands of Jewish men from all around the Mediterranean. These men heard this hurricane-like noise, and this was before amplification or, you know, modern technology, so this was unique. They gathered around the building with the upper room, and as they gathered, the 120 walked out among them. The hurricane-like noise probably diminishes a little bit, and the disciples began walking through the crowd speaking in these foreign languages. Now we read about some of the regions these languages were recognized. The Parthians, Medes, Elamites, this would be present-day Iran. Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. Judea, well, they had the shortest travel distance. You know, they're from Jerusalem and present-day Israel. There's Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia. These are modern-day Turkey. Egypt, guess, right? Yeah, Egypt. Cyrene, present-day Libya. Rome, well, Rome today is the capital of Italy. And then the Cretans, the island of Crete, now part of Greece. And Arabs, present-day Saudi Arabia. So basically, Jewish men from all around the Mediterranean. Verse 6 says, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language. Like, this would have been confusing to this Jewish crowd for a couple of reasons. First off, you know, these are locals. These men and women are local, primarily from the area, Galilee, Nazareth, Jerusalem. How would they ever know these other languages? That's the obvious one. But also, they were telling of the mighty works of God. Now, we have to realize, in Judaism at that time, the only language used for proclaiming God, certainly used in the synagogues, would have been what? Hebrew and maybe some Aramaic. So using other languages would have been strange to proclaim God, but perhaps even a little bit uncouth. You know, shortly after becoming a Christian in my early 20s, I traveled with a young adult group from Northview Church. We went to Brazil, down in the Amazon. And it was a, it was a trip organized by Campus Crusade for Christ for, for sharing the Jesus film. And uh, so we go down there. We spent about a, a week on a small boat on the river. It wasn't a cruise. And sleeping in hammocks, swimming with the piranha, eating alligator, I loved it. You know, like it was a good trip. It was awesome. And on this particular night, we uh, kind of this little jungle native village, pitch black. The rain's coming down like a Paul Jan song, like, you know. And, and the little thatched hut, open air sides, and, uh, and we're about to start the service. Now, our service, normally we sing a couple songs, might perform a skit. We show the Jesus film. And then we have a little discussion. Well, the people there spoke Portuguese. We spoke English. Now, we had taken some time before the trip to learn a few phrases in Portuguese and, and some words, and we also learned to sing a song, you know, a nice worship song. You probably know it, you know, so we started off, and we said, you know, Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your... Pr-. Well, that's about as far as we made it. Because even before we got to that kick and chorus part, you know, you came from heaven to earth. Before we got to that part, their interpreter came over and said, hey, guys, that was working with us, stop. You know, 
it's all good and all, but why don't you just sing in English? You know, apparently our attempt at their language was kind of not much of a proclamation of God. It was more just a uh, distraction. So, you know, you kind of, you know, lick your wounds, sing in English. It was all good. So, obviously, in this Acts 2 account, the disciples spoke with far more clarity. They were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit who gave them the ability to speak in foreign languages, not for their own edification or emotional experience, but rather for the proclamation of wonders of God to everyone gathered. So I guess the question is, why did God choose this process to impart the Holy Spirit into the lives of believers? So I'd like to look at this in three pieces. We're going to say God's people, God's place, and God's purpose. Now, for those of you who have participated in the secret church, you may recognize it's a framework kind of from David Platt to kind of look at a, a piece of scripture. So here we'll start with God's people. Jesus had just completed a three-year ministry on earth. He had performed many miracles. He had taught thousands of people and confronted the religious status quo. And at the end of his earthly mission, he had, we are told, about 120 people, men and women, who were convicted enough to devote themselves to following him and spend the last 40 days under his instruction as a resurrected Messiah. Jesus on earth, three years, miracles, limitless power, 120 people. And after those 40 days, these people still wondered, how would he restore the kingdom on earth? And what did Jesus reply? In Acts 1-7, read, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus was one man. Yes, he was also God. Fully God, fully man. But in his human form, he was capable only of being in one place at one time. For the gospel message to be proclaimed to all people in all the earth, it was obviously not going to happen with, you know, with Jesus wearing out more pairs of sandals. You know, God's plan for his followers, us, is to spread the message. Jesus knew we can't do it on our own. We require the power of God and the Holy Spirit to empower us to change hearts. So the plan all along was for the Holy Spirit to no longer manifest itself within the tabernacle, but in the heart of each believer. Exodus 40, 38, Moses writes, For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of the houses of Israel. The power of God, the Holy Spirit, they were manifest or resided in the temple. But now, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of the God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 2 Corinthians 6.16 Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the Holy God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The Holy Spirit, one person of the Trinity, was no longer detached from people, manifesting in the temple, but now resides in the consciousness of Christian believers. This was a kickoff Sunday. You know, it was a start of something brand new. And God ensured that there was no misunderstanding what was happening here. He said, so on this occasion, the Jewish people, they saw the coming of the Holy Spirit. They saw the evidence of it by the sound of the wind, the fiery tongues, the speaking in foreign languages. It was pretty clear. And all of this activity happened with the Jewish disciples interacting with Jewish pilgrims. So obviously, salvation and the gospel was for the Jews, right? Well, there are two other people groups where Acts speaks of receiving the Holy Spirit. In Acts 8, verse 14, it says, Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. 
Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So, okay, now we got it. We got the Jews and the Samaritans. And, well, there is one other, Acts 10. Remember the story of Cornelius. Cornelius has this vision to send for this guy he doesn't know Peter. And Peter simultaneously has this vision that he's not supposed to discriminate against the Gentiles. So Peter travels to this man's house, Cornelius, and he shares the gospel. And some people believed. In verse 44 of Acts 10, we read, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, meaning the Jews, who had come with Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So, why was it important to have these demonstrations of the Holy Spirit? Because this was the start of something brand new. Some Jews still believe that because they were God's chosen people, that the gospel was solely for them. Observing the Holy Spirit come to the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles removed any confusion that the gospel of Jesus Christ was for all people. Now, one of the other times that we read about the Holy Spirit being manifest was when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. You may recall back in Matthew 3.16, it was, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Also in this account, John the Baptist recorded saying, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Bottom line again, this was the start of something new. This was Jesus' ministry starting out. So, we've seen God's people. And now, let's talk about God's place. This day of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, took place in Jerusalem. You know, it could just as easily have taken place anywhere. You know, but do you think it was just a chance that Jesus was crucified on the Passover Then after his resurrection, he spent 40 days teaching his disciples. And then after nine days later, while they're just hanging out, nothing special, boom, the Spirit comes. Coincidentally, thousands of devout Jewish men happened to be in town for an unrelated event. Obviously, this was all part of God's timing and his planning. You know, not wanting to spoil next week. But uh, after this speaking in foreign languages through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter will get up, speak the first sermon ever, 3,000 people are saved. And where will these 3,000 men go afterward? They're going to return home all around the Mediterranean and start sharing the gospel. You know, this could explain why Paul encountered believers even on his missionary travels before he got there. The people were already converted. So, the 120 were told to wait. And they waited until God's ordained time. How often do we pray expectantly and then impatiently expect the answer? You know, we believe in the sovereignty of God, but we live with this anxiety over the unknown and the unanswered. So we've talked about God's people. We see that was God's place and timing. And finally, let's talk about God's purpose. When I prepared this talk, I was hounded for days, quite honestly, Why was it, and is it so important that the Holy Spirit arrive, and what does it mean that we receive and enjoy his power? Here are a few reasons, grab nine of them, uh, that we find in the Bible for the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll go through these references pretty quickly. So first off, the Holy Spirit is our teacher and reminds us of God's teaching. In John 14, 26, it says, Jesus says, The Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Number two, the Holy Spirit convicts us and the world of sin. 
John 16, 7, 8. Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Number three, the Holy Spirit is God's presence within Christians. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, we already read, do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Number four, Holy Spirit guides us into truth. John 16, 13, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Number five, the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to his believers. In 1 Corinthians 12, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through a spirit of wisdom, another knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith, healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues. He distributes them as he determines. Number six, the Holy Spirit seals our salvation. In Ephesians we read, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Number seven, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. In Romans chapter eight, we read, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Number eight, John 15, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. Your joy may be full. The Holy Spirit brings joy. And number nine, this is the last one I'll talk here. The Holy Spirit gives wisdom and power to carry out the mission to be witnesses to the entire world. Acts 1.8, Jesus told his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This receiving the power from the Holy Spirit is a difficult one for me because quite honestly, I don't perceive the power very often. To think that that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that spoke and the universe leapt into existence, that same power lives in me? It sure doesn't seem like it sometimes. It doesn't feel like it. I like this quote from C.S. Lewis. It says, it's quite right. Now, this is speaking of people just after they become Christians. It's quite right that you should feel that something terrific has happened to you. It has. And be all glowy. Except these sensations with thankfulness, or accept these sensations with thankfulness as birthday cards from God. But remember that they are only greetings, not the real gift. I mean, it is not the sensations that are a real thing. The real thing is the gift of the Holy Spirit, which can't usually be, perhaps not ever, experienced as a sensation or emotion. The sensations are merely the response of your nervous system. Don't depend on them. Otherwise, when they go and you're once more emotionally flat, as you certainly will be quite soon, you might think that the real thing had gone too, but it won't. It will be there when you can't feel it. It may even be most operative when you can feel it the least. So we know that we receive the Holy Spirit upon our conversion. At that time in life when we recognize that we are sinners, that sin has separated us from God, and we are eternally condemned. But we accept, we recognize, we proclaim that, that, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he was raised again, and we surrender our life, meaning we give over the control of my life. It's no longer me, but God in control. At that moment, a miracle takes place. The Holy Spirit enters our heart, our consciousness, and we begin the journey of seeing the world, creation, and people through the eyes of an all-loving God. This coming of the Holy Spirit, though, in our life 
It's a promise. It's a done deal. But we are commanded to not see the Spirit filling as, as just a one-time event. Ephesians 5.18, it says, And don't get drunk with wine, which is rebellion. Instead, be filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. These words, be filled, they speak of continually being filled. It's not a one-time event. Daily praying repentance for my sin and, and praying for the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is what we're commanded to do. I kind of, you know, this filling can be likened to maybe, maybe going to a restaurant. You know, you have a cup of coffee there. I'm not a coffee drinker, but I see it all the time. Coffee drinker. The waitress comes around and says, oh, do you need a top-up? A warm-up. Yeah, yes, please, you say. Well, it's kind of like the filling of the Spirit, I think. You know, it's like starting each day, you know, Lord, thank you for this day. Lord, fill me with the Spirit today. Like, fill me up. Warm me up. And we'll get on with the day. As we embrace and allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives then we will exhibit the fruit or the evidence of that Spirit. In Galatians 5, 23, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. My doubt of the Holy Spirit at work in my life is still a regular occurrence. You know, I'd love to share my faith more boldly and effectively. I'd love to pray for someone's healing and see a miracle. You know, I can't kick my habit of impatience. <laughs> I know people that are praying for healing, praying for victory over addiction, healthy marriages, praying for children that have run away from their faith. You know, and I, a sinner saved by grace, you know, expects God to jump through my hopes on my timing. You know, Lord, this has got to be in your will. Just answer now. Sometimes answers to these pleas don't come on my timeline. Jesus says, wait, be patient, pray. Rest in the sovereignty of the God who loves you. What I realize is the power of the Holy Spirit in life comes more in the form of a small voice that drives me on the continued path of sanctification or becoming more incrementally Christ-like. So this passage that we read today, it finishes with kind of a funny comment, doesn't it? All this stuff happened, do-do-do-do-do, and then verse 13 it says, but others mocking said, oh, they're just filled with wine. They're drunk! I don't know of anyone who can become more articulate or speak in a foreign language drunk rather than sober. So this doesn't make sense to me, but anyway, it was said. And this should be an encouragement to all of us, I think. Why? Well, today all around us, people think we are odd, crazy, simple-minded, science deniers who believe in Jesus and God of the Bible. Well, well, times haven't changed, have they? All through history, mankind has chosen one path or another. And we see belief as reasonable, you know, for a number of reasons. Like, I, I, I look at the existence of morality or the complexity of organisms and, and the universe, the miracle of the Bible, the evidence for Christ's death and resurrection, many other ways that can be logically discussed, but we know that too often minds are already made up before we even have the opportunity for discussion. To many people, we Christians are intellectually drunk. We've drank too much. We're full of wine. I challenge each one of us, starting this week, identify two people in your life who are distant to Christ. Commit to praying for them, of loving them. I'm confident that as we wait on God in prayer, trusting in the promises of his word, inviting the power of the Holy Spirit to be manifest in ever greater ways through the fruit of his spirit, that we will experience the joy of life, sincerely loving people, and seeing more souls experience 
the miracle of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is just the joy to be together with friends, family, Lord. We are brothers and sisters, united by your Spirit. And Lord, we just pray that daily remind us to seek the top-up, the warm-up of your Holy Spirit in our life. Not for our edification, Lord, but for proclaiming your truths into other lives. Pray for each of the people here represented, Lord. Bless them, bless their families, bless marriages, bless relationships. Lord, cause each one of us to, to repent of sin in our lives that we can more fully understand your role at work in us. In Jesus' name.